Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, detection of elusive particles from the center of the sun. And rebooting women's contraception research. I'm Noah Baker, and I'm Nick Howe. How does the sun work? Anyone? Hopefully, some of you shouted nuclear fusion, but it's a bit more complicated than that. It's actually been theorised since the 1930s that there are two fusion reactions at work in the sun's core. Proof of one of these, the CNO cycle, has eluded scientists, but could be proved by the detection of one of the products of the cycle, particles known as neutrinos. These tiny, chargeless particles are difficult to detect at the best of times, but picking out the specific signal of the CNO neutrinos from the sun would require an almost radiation-free environment and a huge detector to catch enough of the elusive particles. But that's just what the Borexino collaboration at the Grand Sasso Laboratory in Italy have done. Nature reporter Dan Fox caught up with Marco Pallavicini, co-spokesperson for the collaboration, and started by asking him what the CNO cycle is and how it figures into the workings of the sun. The CNO cycle is one of the two known mechanisms of nuclear fusion that happens in stars. For stars that are very heavy, the CNO cycle is actually the main mechanism. So it's the most important mechanism working in stars in the universe, probably. But for low mass stars, as our sun is, the first and main mechanism in the sun is called the proton-proton chain. So in the sun, the CNO is just a few percent, maybe one percent of the total. And for this reason, it's harder to detect. So what exactly have you observed and how do those findings prove what's happening inside of the sun or inside of other stars? So what we do is to measure the neutrinos produced by these fusion reactions. A few of the fusion processes happening in the sun produce neutrinos. Neutrinos are very light particles, uh, very weakly interacting, that can escape the sun, reach the Earth, and be detected directly. So they bring information directly from what happens 
into the sun's core during the fusion in the star. So what we did is to use the Borexino detector at Gran Sasso, which is specifically designed for the detection of solar neutrinos. And we have introduced new techniques, new analysis methods, and a clever approach to the stabilization of the detector to make it extremely stable in order to extract the signal of the neutrinos produced by the CNO cycle. And neutrinos are incredibly hard to detect. They are basically massless, they don't have a charge, don't really interact. So could you tell us a bit about how the Borexino experiment worked and how big it is? The Borexino target is essentially a sphere of stainless steel filled with 1300 tons of liquid scintillator. The detecting medium in Borexino is a liquid scintillator. It's a liquid in which when a particle releases energies, produces light. 400 tons of these 1300 are the active part of the, of the detection. And of course, to obtain a better shielding of the radioactivity, this sphere is within a big tank which is filled with ultra-pure water. So you have water outside, then you have the sphere, you have the photomultipliers, and then you have the liquid in the center, which is contained in a very thin nylon vessel, which is the, the core of the detector. In total, about 150 times per day, a solar neutrino hit the core of Borexino, and only a few, actually about five or six, are coming from CNO neutrinos. And how did it feel to finally make these observations and confirm this decades-old theory? Well, it's a, it's a great satisfaction, first of all, because we have devoted a substantial effort to do that. The Borexino was started in the early 90s. We have spent years to develop the techniques to, to produce a detector that is pure enough in terms of internal radioactivity. Any element, any material on Earth is weakly radioactive. There is nothing that is not radioactive. And actually, the level of radioactivity that we need in Borexino is a billion times, or even more, 10 to the 10, 10 to the 11 times less radioactive than in normal materials. This is extremely difficult to be done, but we spent 20 years in developing the techniques and we finally got there. So now the core of Borexino is probably the less radioactive piece of matter on the planet, maybe on the universe actually, because naturally the material is always more radioactive than that, but through careful selection of materials, through purification of this material, we reached a level of radioactivity so low to be able to measure both the PPJ neutrinos and uh, now even the CNO cycle neutrinos. What were some of the experimental challenges that you had to overcome to get your results for this experiment? There are two, the purity of the liquid. So we have a small chemical plant within the underground lab in Gran Sasso so that we can purify the liquid on site. It would be impossible to do the job outside because if you do it outside, the cosmic radiation would immediately uh, interact with your liquid and uh, make it more radioactive. So you have to do it underground and this is what we did. 
But the second difficulty we had to face is that although in tiny small traces, there is a small amount of radioactivity that is produced by the nylon vessel that contains the 400 tons of innermost liquid. And this is a problem for CNO because this moving radioactivity is part of the background that we have to remove in order to see CNO neutrinos. So we built a system to stabilize the temperature of the detector so well that this movement has been made very slow and making this movement very, very slow, we could identify a region within the detector that is pure enough on one side. And on the other side, which is even more important, not only it's very pure, but we can measure the amount of residual radioactivity of bismuth 210, which is the key point. And being able to measure the bismuth 210, we could infer, extract the amount of CNO neutrinos and prove that at least the CNO neutrinos are not zero, so we have a signal. The CNO neutrinos do exist, and we provided a first measurement of its value. It's not a super precise measurement, but it's the first ever, so it's, we are particularly proud of it. That was Marco Pallavicini from the University of Genova. You can read that paper in this week's issue of Nature, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Time now for Coronapod, where we discuss the latest coronavirus news. I'm afraid that you are again stuck with me this week, but joining me all the way from Australia is a voice you may not have heard before, Smriti Malapati. Smriti, for the listeners who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself and let them know what it is that you do here at Nature? Hi, Noah. Yeah, so I'm a reporter based in Sydney, and I cover the Asia-Pacific region. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is a kind of a long-running story, and that's the search for the origin of the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that we talk about every single week on Coronapod. Yeah, so, I mean, this has been a big question ever since the pandemic started, and researchers have been really trying to figure it out. I think most of the evidence suggests that The virus originated in bats, particularly rhinolophus bats. But how it got from rhinolophus bats to people is still quite a mystery. The closest known relative was identified by a group in China, and the virus is called RATG13. And that virus shares about 96% of its genome with SARS-CoV-2. So that still represents about 40 to 70 years since they shared a common ancestor. So we still have a lot to account for in trying to understand how this virus came from bats to people. And early in the pandemic, a researcher told me that there are probably animal samples, bat samples in people's freezers in the region that might hold clues. And that's what's in the story that you've written this week. I find this kind of fascinating. It's sort of like a across a continent, cross country detective search looking in freezers. <laughs> and there have been some samples found in various freezers, not in China. Yeah, so the first one is from a group of researchers in Japan that 
had a few bat samples in their freezer and they decided to test them and then they were actually quite surprised to find a close relative of SARS-CoV-2. It's one of the more distant close relatives, so it shares about 81% of the genome with SARS-CoV-2, so it's not a direct ancestor, but it gives us a little bit of insight into the diversity that these viruses show in bat populations and it was found in a different Rhinolophus bat species than Ratchi 13 was found. The other one is part of the PREDICT project where researchers in several countries, including Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Nepal, they all retested bat samples or other animal samples that could be potential intermediate hosts. So far, the results from all the other retesting efforts haven't been published, but this particular group in Cambodia found a close relative in these two bats that had been in their freezer since 2010. They were quite excited about it, but so far they haven't sequenced the full genome. It's only a small snippet, and from that small snippet you can tell that it's closely related, but until they've sequenced the full genome, you can't quite tell what it means for the pandemic or how closely related it is to SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, and I want to ask you more about what this could mean for the pandemic later. But first, I'm just fascinated by the researchers that are doing this work, that are sort of trekking to labs on the search for this information. Who have you been speaking to to find out more about this? Yeah, so I spoke to several researchers in Cambodia. So one of them was the person who first actually trapped the bats in 2010. And he was telling me this story about how back in 2010, it was quite a remote area. This is in a dense forest in northern Cambodia, close to the border with Laos. And it took several days of walking to get to the cave. And at the time, he was looking for bats in households. And at the entrance of a cave, he would put out a net and bats would kind of be trapped in the net. And he told me that he's actually been back to that cave several months ago to capture more bats after this finding because the idea is that there probably are other SARS-CoV-related coronaviruses in this bat population, which was also a Rhinolophus bat species, but a different one again. And this time there's a road, it goes straight to the cave. There's a pagoda in the cave and it's quite a tourist hotspot. All the dense forest has been converted to agriculture and there's this human to bat interface that has is, is more exposed now. And his concern was really that we're putting ourselves at increased risk of viruses with pandemic potential coming to people, although it's uncertain what that risk really is. Yeah, and I, I think this is something that's worth really highlighting here. So the current pandemic that we're in, it, you know, it's become very normal for 90% of our conversations to be about this virus. But it's not like this was a total shock to the scientific world. People are aware that pandemics like this can arise. Even coronaviruses like SARS came from bats. MERS came from bats via intermediate hosts. And so there are significant research projects that have been going on for years that are trying to sample and find what might be the next big virus. And that research is continuing now with relation to SARS-CoV-2, but it's also looking for the next pandemic that's still coming, because if you sample that, then maybe you can get ahead of the game and have a little bit more of an understanding of how to manage the next pandemic when it sort of inevitably comes around. Is inevitably too strong a word there? Mm, yeah, I mean, some researchers would say it isn't. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the whole reason that we know we know about Ratchi 13, we know about this uh, virus in Cambodia is because these researchers have been sampling animals for so many years. And that was a big part of the intention was to be able to prevent the next big pandemic. I don't know whether we've ever shown that we've been able to use these surveillance efforts to predict and then stop the next pandemic as it's happening. But they have proven to be quite useful when a new virus emerges to understand more about it. Some researchers would say that this kind of surveillance is essential as part of pandemic prevention. And some say that promise of surveillance is a little overblown, but there are definitely a lot of useful insights that we can gain from these samples. Yeah. A proper scientific detective story and one that I think is going to be continuing on for quite some time. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, many researchers I've spoken to have said that it's like looking for a needle in the world's biggest haystack. and, And these kinds of investigations are always retrospective and take take a long time. And we might never know. Absolutely. But they will keep looking. And in the meantime, there's been another vaccine result. This time it's from Oxford AstraZeneca. And this one is a little bit different from the previous three results we've heard from Moderna, from Pfizer and from the Sputnik V vaccine. This time, instead of this sort of big flagship 95% or 90% effective from phase three trial data, we've got a number that seems somewhat more modest, 70% effective. But if you look into the statistics for this, it gets even more head scratchy because that 70% is actually an average of two different dosing regimens, one of which is 62% effective, the other one is 90% effective. And then if you look into the dosing regimens, it gets even more complicated again, because the 90% effective dosing regimen is actually the one that gives the participants a lower dose of the vaccine, which is seemingly confusing. So we've got a story this week in Nature that's kind of trying to dig into this data and ask some of these questions. And honestly, I don't think that people really know the answers yet. Smriti, how are you feeling about vaccines over in Australia? Because that's all we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I highly recommend reading that article because it was really helpful in breaking down the latest results. But here in Australia, life is almost back to normal where we are. You know, my daughter goes to daycare and has been for months and many people are starting to go back to work and gathering in groups. The only thing that really we are limited in is that flying and travel is quite restricted. So we need to get permission to leave the country or if you come, you you have to do this two-week enforced quarantine in a hotel and it costs quite a lot. So I can see a vaccine being a really important part of travel opening up again. And that's kind of, it feels like what Australia is kind of holding out for and that's what they're keeping their borders shut for. But yeah, we'll see. I feel like as more and more of these vaccine results trickle in, I keep getting these waves of excitement and then massive cynicism that comes over me. This latest result sort of feels like it it reinforces that even more. You know, there's this 62% number and this 70% number. And some of the researchers that are quoted in this story are saying, you know, this may be nothing to do with the dosing at all. This may not even be an effect. It may just be a result of the sizes of the trials in each of those two dosing regimens. And it might just be a statistical anomaly that will even itself out later on when more numbers come in. It sort of really brings home how much there is left to do and how far there is still to go. Yeah, I mean, 
like making plans for the next trip home. <laughs> I keep pushing them off. I kept thinking that, oh, maybe we could do something in, over Christmas. And now it's maybe those plans in June won't happen anymore. Last week on CoronaPod, Heidi said the, the latest vaccine result was allowing her to start to hope to think that maybe next year she could fly back <laughs> to the States to see her parents. In the meantime, we shall keep looking at vaccine results, keep searching for bats in freezers, and hopefully keep speaking to you in Sydney in the future. Smriti, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show this week. Yes, thank you, Noah. More from Coronapod next time. Coming up on this week's show, we're asking why the development of new forms of women's contraception has stalled. Right now, though, it's the research highlights, read by Anna Jay. Does your sleep pattern match your age? It might sound like a dubious internet quiz, but that's a question probed by scientists looking at how sleep patterns affect cognitive performance. Researchers in the US tracked the sleep of almost 4,000 older adults, monitoring their brain waves as they slept. They then scored each person against more than 150 different measures of sleep, including duration, rapid eye movement and preference for mornings or evenings. The team found that older people with sleep patterns more like those of young people tended to have stronger cognitive abilities than those whose sleep patterns more closely match their age. The researchers say that pinpointing the specific elements of sleep neurophysiology that are associated with cognitive decline could lead to sleep-based initiatives to help improve cognitive health as we age. You can find that research in Nature Human Behaviour. Sterilising medical equipment is hugely important to prevent infections spreading among patients in healthcare settings. In high-income nations, this is commonly done using high-pressure steam. But in parts of the world where access to electricity or fuel can be unreliable, that can be a real challenge. Researchers at Massachusetts Institute of Technology tackled this problem by modifying an off-the-shelf solar absorber to create a solar-powered steam generator. Existing solar absorbers can collect heat from the sun, but they don't concentrate it well enough to create steam without additional costly equipment. Instead, the MIT team modified the absorber by adding a transparent aerogel layer to its surface, which greatly reduced heat loss. When they tested the system on a rooftop in India, the generator ran for 30 minutes, producing sterilising steam capable of killing off microorganisms. The researchers hope the inexpensive device could help avoid infections in medical settings in resource-poor regions. Read more in Juul. Back in the 60s, the introduction of the contraceptive pill was hailed as a revolutionary moment for women's reproductive freedom. But in the subsequent 60 years, how far has women's contraception come? Granted, there are a wide range of options, be they hormonal, like the pill, or implants, intrauterine devices, like the coil, or barrier methods, like condoms or diaphragms. But 60 years after the pill made a splash, Researchers are frustrated with the lack of innovation in women's contraception and are calling for a reboot of research that's been stuck for decades. Reporter Lizzie Gibney jumped on a conference call with two researchers to find out more. My name is Sarah Chamberlain. I'm a partner with Boston Consulting Group. 
My name is Stephen Gerard. Until recently, I was a, a program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In the following interview, you'll hear from both Sarah and Stephen. But first, here's Lizzie. So on first glance, we might think that there's a pretty wide variety of effective contraception out there. But in your opinion, is what we have so far good enough? It, it's a great question. And I think there's a couple of ways to think about what's good enough. The first way is, are the methods good enough at preventing pregnancy? And from an efficacy standpoint, when these methods are used perfectly, the current methods meet the bar. However, some methods are not as effective in preventing pregnancy when they are used under what we call typical use. For example, when used perfectly, the pill has a failure rate of 0.3%. However, when used under typical use, the failure rate is 7%. We see a similar gap for condoms. The failure rate under perfect conditions is 2% and jumps all the way up to 13% when used typically. The second way to think about, though, what's good enough is actually whether these methods are satisfying or even pleasing to the users. And on this dimension, I would argue that they all fall incredibly short. There is a challenge around painting this picture because there are actually quite big data gaps. Women's health is a field that is understudied overall, but what we do know is that side effects are a big deal. These side effects include changes to mood, physical changes such as the development of acne or weight gain, and irregular bleeding. And these side effects are cited as the number two reason for discontinuation of contraceptives. Number two only behind women who are choosing to discontinue contraceptives because they want to get pregnant. What are some of the problems when people are either not able to use the contraception effectively or they're experiencing these side effects? So the biggest downstream consequence of this is unintended pregnancy. And the statistics here are quite staggering. An estimated 50% of pregnancies globally are unintended. Of the unintended pregnancies, about half of them end in abortion. And the remaining result in huge direct cost to the healthcare system, estimated around 20 billion a year in the US and 10 billion a year in low and middle income countries. And that is of direct medical expenses alone. The indirect costs associated with unintended pregnancies are also substantial. So given the ubiquity of contraception, it seems like this should be a really hot area of research. What kind of progress has been made then on improving or developing the contraception we have or or new types of contraception? Many of the innovations in the past decade or two have really focused on incremental developments to either existing technologies or existing hormonal drugs, where perhaps the duration of action or the route of administration has been modified. However, these drugs fundamentally cause the same forms of side effects that Sarah referenced, which have these consequences in terms of user satisfaction and associated issues with discontinuation or or lack of use in the first place. What about in terms of just cash terms? Is this an area where people are investing? There is certainly a need for substantial additional financing in the early stage research space for contraception. We see in neighboring fields the relative proportion of sales from areas like oncology, which are put into R&D by key stakeholders, happen at a much uh, higher percentage than in the contraceptive space. So compared to the extent to which contraception is used, the amount spent on its research is, is pretty low. It could be a lot better. 
And so Sarah mentioned that women's health issues in general can be quite underfunded. What are some of the other reasons that this isn't getting as much time and investment as it perhaps should? There's a couple of key areas to think about as to what leads to investment. One is the probability of technical success. Another one is in terms of risk factors. What is the likelihood of liability risks? What are the the safety risks that need to be thought about? And when you apply that to contraception, developing products for healthy women of reproductive age, the barriers or the challenges in that space are understandably extremely high to ensure that new products are as safe and as effective as possible. Furthermore, women are using contraceptives today and the market is a multi-billion dollar market. And so in some ways, the signal to biopharma companies is that this market is healthy. There is no reason to further invest in innovation and that is an understandable perception. But what the data on side effects and the dissatisfaction among women highlights is that women are currently being forced to make a trade-off between significant and severe side effects that are impacting their mental and physical health and their ability to effectively prevent pregnancy. And we're really excited about novel contraceptives that break this paradigm and completely shift it to eliminate the need for this trade-off. Do you see any areas that give you hope that perhaps eventually we will have forms of contraception that women don't just put up with, but they really are satisfied with? Yes, I am excited about a number of the recent scientific developments and technical advances that may enable us to get there. And in particular, I think one area of women's health that has seen an increase in funding over recent years is fertility research. And I think the fertility research is the other side of contraception. And so through that research and through advances in things like genomics research as well, we're starting to understand opportunities for contraceptives to be developed that have a fundamental new mechanism of action. And so we've generally been talking about women's contraception. Very briefly, some of our listeners may be wondering where do men fit into this picture? Is uh, men's contraception also an area that is attracting interest at the moment? It's a, a very relevant and interesting component of the contraceptive space. And, you know, honestly, I think we could do an entire <laughs> separate article on, on male contraception. But we know that women want products that protect them and they can have control of and their current options do not fully meet those needs and that's not going to change and so independent of male contraception there is a clear need for innovation in the female space. That was Stephen Gerard, formerly of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Before him you heard from Sarah Chamberlain of Boston Consulting Group. You can read more in a comment piece that Stephen and Sarah have co-authored in Nature. We'll put a link in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for this week's briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that we found in the Nature Briefing. Noah, this week I've got a story about finding papers by getting a sort of snappy summary of them. Oh, I have a feeling I know what this story is about. Is this perhaps about an AI that's potentially going to steal our jobs and summarise papers for us in a way that can be understood by people. <laughs> that, that was my thoughts as well when I first read this, that, oh man, that's what we do. We summarise papers. So yeah, this is a story about an AI that's been developed by a scientist from the Allen Institute, and it's used on the search engine Semantic Scholar. And essentially what it does is it takes a paper and through some clever natural language processing, it delivers a one-sentence summary of that paper. Uh, that sounds 
amazing and interesting, but my sort of alarm bells are ringing in my head. When anyone says an AI could do something like summarize something, and the alarm bells are saying, surely it's a bit rubbish at it. Is it any good? Well, according to an information scientist who was interviewed in this story, which is in Nature this week, they said that it's not perfect, but it does a pretty good job. And also, Semantic Scholar, they've started this on a trial. They're using it just for computer science papers at the moment. And they've said so far, they've had a pretty positive response from it. And there's a free tool as well that you can use to try this yourself. And I actually gave it a go for a couple of things we've been covering recently. So in today's show, there was a story at the start that was covered by Dan about neutrinos and the CNO cycle in the sun. And I put the abstract of that paper through this tool called Too Long Didn't Read. And it came up with this, which is, We report the direct observation of neutrinos produced in the CNO cycle in the sun. And for anyone who's listened to that podcast piece, they can probably say, that's actually a pretty good summary of that paper. You know, I think that might be a more succinct summary than the manuscript editor who pitched that paper to me gave me when they first told me about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not covering like all the nuance and things that are in it. But what it's designed for is when you're just sort of skimming through a bunch of papers, you're searching for a particular topic or something like that. It's just to give you a flavour of what a paper is about. And some papers it does really well on, like that one. And I tried some others as well, and it didn't do quite so well. So I think it's still a developing tool. But it certainly gives you sort of a flavour of what the research is about. And the people who are behind this tool, they think that it will save scientists and researchers a lot of time as they scan through many manuscripts when they're trying to find things that are relevant to their field. Right, okay. So I have some questions. If I put my reporting on artificial intelligence hat on, then the kinds of questions that come to my head are usually with artificial intelligence in order for it to be able to do what it can do, which is amazing, it needs to be trained on things. So does that mean that the papers it trains on will influence how good it is at understanding different disciplines? Yeah, so that's definitely a good point. And this was, as you say, trained on thousands of papers. So in the initial round of training, it was trained on a whole range of different papers. But then the second round of training, it was trained just on computer science papers. And that's where it's currently being used. And so that's likely where it'll have the most impact at the moment. But I think going forward, they're going to train it on a whole range of different papers and it will come up with better summaries. And the other thing to say about this as well is it doesn't make it like a plain English summary. It's not quite taking yours and my job. It is still including a lot of the jargon and things because they're designed for people who are just trying to skim things that are in their fields. So they'll actually know some of the jargon terms. It's just picking like key words from the document to assemble new sentences that give a reasonable summary of what the paper is about. Absolutely. So that makes sense to me. So you're, it really is kind of a, a cheat sheet summary of a paper for an expert in that field rather than an explanation of what that paper is about in a succinct way. Yeah, although they do say that they are trying to make a one for non-expert audiences as well. So maybe in the future we'll see like one line summary of papers for a non-expert audience, but we'll have to see how that develops in the future. I'm going to have to go and play with this now and throw a load of papers into it and see what they come up with because I'm fascinated. Yeah, I actually spent probably far too long just putting different papers in to see how successful it is. I'm certainly going to use it to try and make snappier summaries of papers for the podcast. Absolutely. It feels like it's a bit of a tweet machine. Useful. (laughs) 
But anyway, I think that's enough of the briefing chat this week. Thank you so much for talking to me, Noah. And listeners, if you want to find out more about any of the stories we discussed, then you'll find links to them in the show notes. And if you want even more stories like this, but instead delivered straight to your inbox, then make sure you sign up to The Nature Briefing. We'll also put a link in the show notes on where to do that. And that's all for this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on Twitter at Nature Podcast, or you can email us at podcastatnature.com. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.